AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting author coming back uh, once again. And in a previous session, we talked about his earlier book on the rise of the Obver. Today, we're going to conclude that story and discuss his newest book, Hitler's Trojan Horse, The Fall of the Obver. Nigel West is a very well-known, prolific author, former member of British Parliament, and sought out by many on topics, particularly of counterintelligence. And I'm delighted to have him back once more. Nigel, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to talk to you again, Jim. Nigel, off camera, we were talking about the events that led up to the fall of the Abwehr. And you had a very interesting point that there were a series of key defections by senior Abwehr officers that were significant in the demise of the Abwehr. Yes, very little has been written about the Abwehr defectors, either the impact that they had or their motivation. And I was lucky enough to talk to Eric Vermeeren, who was a member of the Abwehr in Istanbul, who defected to the British in January 1944. And I was also lucky enough to talk to the SIS officer, Nicholas Elliott, who was responsible for persuading Vermeeren, who was a very devout Catholic and strongly disapproved of the Nazis. And the more he learned about what was going on in Germany, the more determined he was to undermine the regime. And he defected in January 1944, and he was followed very soon afterwards by one of his friends, who was another Abwehr officer, called Paul Hamburger. And Paul Hamburger came over alone, but he was followed by the Klekowskis, a husband and wife team who were Abwehr officers. And you might well say, why an Abwehr officer defecting? What is that? Why should that be of any great significance? And the answer is that the best intelligence, I think, comes from defectors. And the very first defector from the Abwehr, Richard Verman, in 1941 in Algeria, was an extraordinary breakthrough because he gave the British, for the very first time, his take, his analysis of the entire structure of the Abwehr, including painting on uh, a wiring diagram, the names and the cover names of his friends, the individual officers who were all components of the Kriegs organizations and the Abwehr representation, Stalin, uh, around the world. And Vermin told us something really important. All his information was corroborated from another very secret source, signals intelligence source, which was the interception of uh, Enigma ciphered cables that had been exchanged between the various different Abwehr stations around the world and Berlin. So we had a lot of knowledge from a SIGINT source, but all of that was authenticated and elaborated on by Vermin. And thereafter, we were reluctant to accept defectors because very often the meal ticket for a defector would be the name of an agent. And if that agent had already been come under our control, then the last thing we wanted was to compromise a double agent by accepting 
uh, a defector. But Eric Vermeeren was such an important individual with a knowledge of agents right across the Middle East. He'd been handling agents in Cairo and in uh, Iran uh, and in Palestine. So he was an, an important figure, and he pulled the rug, really, from under the senior management of the ABVA and resulted in the arrest of Admiral Canaris. The fact that three other ABVA personalities followed in his footsteps didn't help matters either. And that was the beginning of the end. But the defectors provided a huge amount of information. And even in their negotiations, while they were building up to the moment when they would be exfiltrated, usually through Spain or Portugal, that information proved to be of immense value to the West. And what intrigued me, which I included in the book, are the wiring diagrams of these adverb spy rings around the world in the Balkans and in the Middle East, as well as in Spain and Italy and North Africa. These wiring diagrams are so comprehensive, they're a gift to any intelligence officer because you have listed the cover names, the code names, the real names of the individual personalities, together with details of the license plate of their vehicle, their telephone number, and the name of their mistress. I mean, a really very impressive detail of what we knew and when we knew it uh, about the advert. And having talked to some of these people, I could see that this was tremendously debilitating for the advert to the point that in 1944, the Sekke effectively took over the advert. But because the advert was so well entrenched in the collection of military intelligence, the Sekke could never do the job completely. And it was only after the 20th of the July plot, the push to replace Hitler, that the Sekke took total control of the advert. Nigel, earlier you were sharing with me what a negative impact the 20th July plot had on the Abwehr and its ultimate destruction. Could you describe that a little bit for our audience, please? Well, what your audience will be familiar with is the the classic story of Valkyrie, which was a group of German anti-Nazis working within the Abwehr uh, who penetrated the Führer's headquarters in Poland and attempted to assassinate him. And on the 20th of July, the putsch went into action and failed when it became clear at midnight that Hitler's voice over the radio saying that he had survived an assassination attempt was authentic. And there was a bloodbath that followed. But it has always been assumed up until now that this group of Germans were anti-Nazis and wanted to reach a separate peace with the Allies. But the truth is really very much more extraordinary. First of all, the plot began in 1942, when an Abwehr officer, who was a lawyer working for Lufthansa, who regularly visited Madrid, was sent by Jörg Hansen, who was a senior Abwehr officer, to make contact with the British in order to promote a scheme to assassinate Hitler. So this operation began two years before the 20th of July plot. And the the lawyer was uh, Otto Jörn, 
And he went back. He was actually in Berlin on the 20th of July. And he managed to avoid arrest. He he was hidden for three days. And then he got onto a Lufthansa aircraft and returned to Madrid three days later. And he was then exfiltrated to London. And it's only by studying files that have recently been declassified that we now see that Otto Yon, whose codename was Whiskey, had been a British asset for two years beforehand. But the story gets even better than that. It turns out that the principal plotters uh, of the 20th of July ran the operation from a secret headquarters just outside Berlin, codenamed Belinde. And Belinde appears on many of the wiring diagrams that illustrates the internal communications of the Abwehr. So people knew that the Abwehr headquarters had been bombed out in 1942 in Berlin, and they had moved to an underground site at a place called Zossen. But in 1944, elements of the Abwehr moved to uh, a secret location, which was an estate owned by a nobleman called Soames Barut. And the Schloss Barut was his family's ancestral home, and this became the site of where the plotters met and um, the accomplices made their plan to assassinate Hitler. And the proposition was not just to replace the Nazis as a legitimate government in Germany, but it was also to restore the monarchy. And that's where the Soames Barut family played a key role in the, uh, the planning of the assassination. And what was so extraordinary was that the site codenamed Belinde, and the Allies never knew where it was, turns out to have been the Schloss Barut, which was owned by the Zerms Barut family. So all of these were overlapping layers in this very complicated plot, which ultimately failed. It nearly succeeded. Hitler was wounded uh, when the, the bomb that uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg had planted in Hitler's headquarters detonated. And Klaus von Stauffenberg was a cousin of the Zerms Beirut family. And he had been at Belinde, at the Schloss Beirut, in the, the days before the plot. And the airfield where he flew to Poland with the bomb uh, was neighboring to the, the Schloss uh, Beirut. So this is an entirely different take on the 20th of July plot and Operation Valkyrie as we've known it hitherto. And all of this material, you don't have to take my word for it. One of the most detailed reports that I found on the spy code named Whiskey was written by an MI5 officer. And it, fortunately, I've spent years working with these people, so I was well aware that HLA Hart was none other than Herbert Hart, who subsequently became professor of jurisprudence at Oxford University. And he was the author of the secret report on Otto Yon. Now, you might well ask, why isn't this any of this in MI6's official history. And the answer is that it had to be excluded because of uh, a desire not to offend the Germans, because Otto Jön not only defected to the British, 
not only was exfiltrated from Lisbon back to London, but after he settled in London, we, the British, recommended him to become chief of the new federal German intelligence service, the BFV, based in Cologne. And since he was our nominee, I think it's reasonable to say that he was a bit more, I think he continued to be an asset as well. And so he couldn't be compromised. Amazing story. Nigel, how quickly did the Nazis realize that it was the Abwehr behind the plot? And how fast was the collapse of the Abwehr thereafter? This is a a very tragic chapter in the story of the Abwehr because Jörg Hansen was compromised almost immediately. Uh, Admiral Canaris, the chief of the organization, probably didn't play a direct role in the plot itself, but he was quite prepared to cast a Nelsonic eye over the work of his subordinates, York Hansen being one of them. York Hansen didn't survive, and there was a bloodbath. About 1,500 uh, Abwehr officers were punished in various different ways, from execution down to being thrown out of the army. And there were a, a few people who were acquitted at, at trials, not everybody, was was found guilty. And so there were a few people who escaped and were able to tell the story. But the relationship between the plotters and the pro-monarchists who were backing Zoms Beirut uh, and were implicated in the Schloss Beirut plot, um, all of all of them um, have never been, their identities have never been disclosed before, and that dimension of the plot has never been revealed. So the Abwehr really did not survive as an organization. Did it have to be recreated many years later in a different form? Yes, the, the, the Abwehr was a very strange creature because when it was founded, it was based on these military districts. So, for example, the military district that included Hamburg, was mainly responsible for intelligence collection in the United States and the United Kingdom. Why? Because the transatlantic liners uh, used to dock at at Hamburg. So there was an opportunity there to recruit personnel uh, from the liners that were crossing the Atlantic. The Germans were reluctant to use radio because they fully understood the consequences of hostile interception. And so they employed hairdressers and stewards and waiters and staff on the the transatlantic voyage uh, to act as couriers. So it was only a delay of five or seven days uh, to get messages from New York, or just a matter of hours um, to get messages from the United Kingdom back to Hamburg. So the, the military district in Hamburg provided the staff for the operations that were conducted against the UK and the USA. And it was very similar. Wiesbaden, for example, had a lot of Austrians after Anschluss. And so uh, they developed an expertise. And there is no denying that the uh, the Abwehr in 1940 masterminded the success in the West, the, the Blitzkrieg, not only in 1939 against Poland, but if you think of the occupation of Norway, uh, Denmark, and the Netherlands, and Belgium in 1940, 
This was facilitated by really first-rate, applicable, relevant military intelligence supplied by the Abwehr. So up until 1944, the, the Abwehr was riding high and had a very good reputation and was feared, not understood, but feared uh, in the West. And it wasn't really until the start of the defectors that, um, led by Richard Verman, who was subsequently protected by the, his British and American interrogators, it wasn't really until the defectors started building up in numbers that the advert was ultimately compromised. And then the plot itself, the 20th of July plot, was the, the end of the story. And the consequence, of course, was the execution of Canaris, we think, in about February 1945. Well, once again, a fascinating story with all kinds of new revelations. I want to thank Nigel West and Frontline Books for informing us and entertaining us once again. A pleasure.